Welcome to the Focus Church Teachings Podcast. We hope this brings a lot of encouragement to you, but we also want you to know that we believe discipleship doesn't occur here, but occurs in small groups where people share their gifts with each other in many-to-many discipleship. If you want to know more about that, stick around after the teaching. So, let's look at Hebrews 6, 6, uh, verses 4 through 20. So, right after saying... Leave us aside the elementary teachings about the Messiah and instead embrace the Messiah who has come in Jesus. He says this. He says, It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the coming age, and who have fallen away to be brought back to repentance. To their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting Him to public disgrace. I know sometimes we read this and it feels to us like the author of Hebrews is talking about sort of the ability to, to, to lose your salvation, to have embraced who the Lord is, to have received the Holy Spirit, to have uh, really accepted the gospel, and then if we fall away, we can never be brought back to repentance, which would be a weird thing to say, even if he was expressing that you could lose your salvation, to say that there would be no coming back at that point. And I don't actually think that's what he's saying here. In fact, I think the author of Hebrews is using words to show that he's talking about people who have not fully embraced it, right? He talks about, you've tasted this, you've shared in the Holy Spirit. How have the, the, the uh, Hebrews shared in the Holy Spirit? Well, by being members of this community, right? They experience the powers and the benefits and the blessings of the gospel, but they haven't really embraced the gospel. They haven't digested it, they haven't welcomed it, they've just tasted it. And so I think that's really what he's saying, because remember who he's talking to is some people who are wanting Jesus as a sort of pleasant addition to what they understand of the Old Covenant, right? That's how they want to see him. They want to, they want to see him as, as just this pleasant addition, but not as the necessity, not as the fulfillment of the law. When they think of Jesus being crucified, they're not accepting that what he's done at the cross is the means for their redemption. They're not accepting that this is what makes them whole and righteous. And instead, they want to return to other things to make them whole and righteous. And when they do that, it's like they're not accepting the, res- the crucifixion for their redemption. It's like they're making them do it all over again. It's like it doesn't matter. It's no good. It's no benefit to us. So I think what he's saying when he says you can't be brought back to repentance is he's not saying these are people who have actually repented. He's saying these are people who have come right up, right? They've... They've come up to the edge of repentance. They've come to the right road, but they turn back from that road. They see the road. They see the value. They see the benefit. They've tasted it, but they turn back from it. And instead, they want to find a different road that will get them to the same place. They have the same destination in mind. Salvation, redemption, holiness, or reconciliation with God. All those things, but they want to do it through the law. They want to do it through the old covenant. And so what the author is saying is, you can leave this road, you cannot accept this, but there isn't another road back. There is no other road back to God. That's his point. Not that you can never, never come back, <laughs> but if you're trying to get there a different way, there's no other road back. See, they, they wanted to see Jesus as something pleasant and possibly even useful, but sort of second in necessity to the law. And so he's a good guy. He had some good things to say. He had some good teachings. He clarified some things about the Old Testament, but really... The Old Testament is still the road they want to get to their destination. And what the author is saying is, now that you've seen the gospel, if you go away from it looking for something else, there is nothing else. You're never going to find another way here. You're never going to find another path. 
And what's interesting to me is this is really not so similar. Their reaction is not so different, rather, from our reaction sometimes. As I, as I talk to people about the gospel, sometimes they're reluctant. They really like the gospel. They like Jesus. They think he's a good guy. They even accept the redemption to some degree. But there's this sticking point where they say, but, but it doesn't seem right that he's the only way. Right? It doesn't seem right that he's the only way. And there's this, this hesitation of putting everything in him. And, and, I, and I'm not sure exactly what all the reasons for it are. I mean, if you think it through a little bit, it's not illogical that there would be only one road to salvation, right? There's nothing about logic that says you can't have limited options. In fact, it's logical to assume there are limited options. It's, it's not usually the case that our options are infinite, right? doesn't mean there's always one, but they're usually limited. And some options are absolutely limited. The law of non-contradiction says that exactly, that you can't both have an AirPod case in this pocket and not have an AirPod case in this pocket. Right now I have one in this pocket, now I don't have one in this pocket, but it can't be both at the same time. The options are limited. And so it isn't illogical to say Jesus is the only means to salvation. So what is it that kind of holds us back, right? What is it that we don't like about that? It's interesting because we don't grate against even single options in other places when it's the case. Sometimes we just say that's practically the truth. Think about coming to a room which only has one door, right? This room only has one door. And you want to go into that room, right? And you say, my family knows I'm lying. This room has more doors. But just go with me. Pretend this room only has one door. And you say, I don't want to go into the room through that door. Well, I'm sorry. This is the door that allows you into the room. There's nothing inherently unfair about there only being one room. But I think the issue of fairness is what does happen to us. I think the idea of Jesus being the only means to salvation, I think... One of the things that gets us is that we feel that that's unfair. It feels exclusive, right? But we're misunderstanding the exclusivity of Christianity. See, here's the deal. It is true that Christianity is narrow in the sense that there's only one way to the Father. We believe, and it's not just Christianity, we believe this is just the truth of the universe, that there's only one way to God, and that's through Jesus. That's through the redemption provided by God himself. And that's the, that's the door he provides to him. And, but there's nothing unfair about that. What makes it feel unfair to us is we think about if you have one door into a room and you invite everybody to come in through that door, that's not unfair. What's unfair is if that door itself is not accessible to everybody, right? If it's not wheelchair accessible or, or it's really short so tall people can't come in or you have to pay an entry fee so only rich people can come in. That, that would indeed make it unfair. If Jesus, if God said this is the only way to me and not everybody can have it. But what God actually says, what's fascinating to me, and this is what my challenge to you, if you're one of those people who thinks that there being only one way to God is unfair, my challenge to you is to really look at Jesus' words, because what Jesus says over and over, one of the points he makes about the gospel, in the gospel, so often, is that of all things, Christianity is the most inclusive. Meaning, he said, talks a lot about how in culture and in communities, there's access, Right? Blessed are the poor, he says. Well, that's a weird thing to say, because in every community, the poor are not blessed. Why? Because they don't have access. They don't have the same power and the same access to all the benefits that rich people do. But Jesus says in the gospel, the poor have the same access. And the, the, the crippled have the same access. And the weak have the same access. The, Jesus makes a, a very clear point over and over and over that he welcomes everybody. And that everybody can enter through the door. It is big enough. It is handicap accessible. It is available to all socioeconomic levels. 
It is available to all races and, 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 and all different kind of ways of thinking and different IQs and different intelligences, different skills. The gospel is one of the few things, maybe the only thing in the universe, in which everybody has equal access. And our access all comes through the same door, being Jesus. See, what's interesting is the reason that the gospel is so inclusive is because Jesus is the only way in for everybody. There isn't a special door that other people get to get in. There isn't a, a back door that allows people to get in who otherwise couldn't. Some of you watch the show, This Is Us, probably on TV. We watched that. I love that show. I actually think it's really good. And there was a recent episode in which one of the, one of the members of the family is an actor. He's a fairly big deal actor, an actor playing an actor. It's very meta. But he's a, he's a fairly big deal actor in the, in the world of the TV show. So he's famous, and he knows important people, and he's rich. And he loses his driver's license, and he comes to an airport, and they won't let him through because of his driver's license. Well, in the very next episode, spoiler alert if you haven't seen it yet, but in the next episode, he, he does get that. He gets on the plane, but they don't tell us how. He just says that the head of TSA is going to get a big present. Well, they didn't want to get into it, but obviously he got unfair treatment, right, if he really got through <laughs> because of his power, because of his wealth, because of his fame. And the good thing about Christianity, the thing I want you to understand, is when we talk about it, that there's only one way to heaven, one way to the Father, that isn't making it exclusive or unfair. That's the reason it is fair. That's the reason that everybody achieves righteousness the same way through the blood of Christ. There are some people who get there because of other favors, because of other stratus. Now, here's what's interesting about this. One of the reasons the Hebrews pushed back against Jesus as the Messiah is precisely because it meant losing their special position with God. It meant that they can no longer see themselves as the only ones who have this relationship with God. Jesus tells a lot of parables about this, right? He tells parables about how it's very hard for the Hebrews, the Jews, who have been God's people for all these years, and, and to their credit, have been following him and sacrificing for him. It's very hard that now all of a sudden the kingdom is open to all these new people, to everybody, and some of their pushback against Jesus being the Messiah is that. If they embrace Jesus as the fulfillment of the law, then where is their special place as the keepers of the law? And Paul goes on later to say, you do have a special place, but it's not in that your relationship with God is special. It's in that God used you to be a blessing to everyone else. You get to usher in the revelation of who God is, and Jesus is Messiah. So I just really want to be clear. I think we get hung up on this idea that how can it be fair that Jesus is the only way? What about people who believe otherwise? Well, Again, the fact that I have a door into a room isn't unfair to people who don't believe the truth, who don't connect with reality. The fact that there isn't another door is not, is not really unfair, and especially if I make that door accessible to you. And this is what the author of Hebrews is saying to the Hebrews. You've tasted it. Don't turn away from it. If you do, you'll miss out on the door. You'll miss out on the way. There may be other reasons that we, we kind of worry about this. I think FOMO is one of them. If you're missing out, what if we put everything in Jesus and then the real answer is somewhere else? The problem with FOMO is that you can, you can get caught in a trap with that where you never do anything. You never move forward on really important things. You always miss the doors and the opportunities that open for you because you're worried there might be a better one around the corner. And all I can tell you is that what the author of Hebrews is saying is that Jesus is the best opportunity. If you've tasted it, You've shared in it. And that's what I want to challenge those of you who have experienced the community or who have experienced the gospel. Man, don't, don't despise or, or discard the things you've seen there. Think about the fact that that is telling you. We're not asking you to blindly accept it, but that is showing that it's revealing to you the goodness of God. You can't miss out on anything 
when you're hanging out with the God of the universe. He won't allow it to happen. So whether it's FOMO or whether it's a sense of unfairness, neither of those are true. Jesus is the only way. There is no other road back to God. But he is inviting everybody and calling everybody. And there's incredible inclusion in the gospel. And that's what we invite you to be a part of and to experience. He goes on, he says, land that drinks in the rain often falling on it and produces a crop useful to those for whom it is farmed receives the blessing of God. But land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and is in danger of being cursed. In the end, it will be burned. The point is, there's land and there's blessing. Receive the blessing, right? Just accept it. It's the same statement that you can turn away from it, but what's the point? Why would you want to, why would you want to turn away from the rain? Why would you not want to accept the life that comes from the rain? There's no reason. Just reach out and take it. There's no ego. There's no jealousy. There's no fear of missing out. There's no nothing that is, is, is big enough to keep you from just taking this. Just take it. Don't become those who hear the word and then just walk away from it, uh, who just refuse it and don't accept it. He goes on and he says, even though we speak like this, dear friends, we are convinced of better things in your case. This is why I don't think he's talking about them losing their salvation, because he then says, we're not really thinking that you're in this position. We are convinced of better things in your case, things that have to do with salvation, right? He's saying those things didn't have to do with salvation. They weren't about having it and losing it. They were about never accepting it. But we think that you're in a better place where you will turn down that right road. You will accept the, the Lord and who he is. God is not unjust. See, he's not unfair. He will not forget your work or the love you have shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. We want each of you to show the same diligence to the very end so that what you hope for may be fully realized. We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. For the last several six chapters, last several, for the last six chapters of Hebrews, the first six chapters of Hebrews, the author has repeatedly come back to the idea that what God is calling from us is faith, is to trust him, is to be patient and look to him for our salvation. So when he talks about don't be lazy, he's not talking about work harder. He's talking about trust God. Don't take the easy way out and just go back to the old law that you have. Trust God and be patient. Be patient. I think for us, a lot of times, laziness is also impatience. We just don't want to trust God. We don't want to wait. We want to get out there and do it ourselves, right? He goes on, he says, when God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no, greater for, no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. And so after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. People swear by someone greater than themselves, and the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. There's a lot here. And I'm not going to go into all the detail. Understanding the story of Abraham is helpful. You can look into it if you want. But I just want to make, because I want to get to the next point and really hit on that tonight. But I, do, I will just say very simply what he's saying here is this. I, I think of that, uh, boy, I'm going to date myself here for a moment, but I think of Oh God, or it might have even been Oh God Part 2, back with George Burns. I don't know if anybody listening is old enough to remember this, but George Burns plays God. And at one point, and I think it might be an Oh God Part 2, I don't remember, but at one point he's 
he's in a court of law, and they he's going to swear upon the uh, uh, he's going to take the oath to tell the truth, and the the phrase is "So help me God," and he gets to that point, and of course he says "So help me me," and that makes me chuckle because it's it's like who is God going to swear on, right? What what does that mean? How who's going to help him? He is God, and this verse is kind of saying that it's saying that. God swore by himself that he would fulfill his promise with Abraham. And the author is pointing out how silly that is. Really. He's pointing out that, in what, that that's ridiculous because God himself cannot lie. If God says, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this. So why on earth did he say he was going to do it and then make an oath that he was going to do it? And the oath is actually fulfilled in the Old Testament by the ceremony that God does. And, and the point that the author is making is, why on earth did God swear by himself, he is the thing we swear by, right? <laughs> when we want to tell of our truthfulness, we pin it upon who God is. Well, what does God do? He pins it upon himself, but that's so meta. That's so weird. And the author is telling us the reason God did it was not because it made him more truthful. Of course not. He did it for us. He did it for Abraham. He wanted us to be able to look at God's promise and say, not only is God himself unchangeable and cannot lie, but then God made an oath, which also shows to us, humanly speaking, how unchangeable the promise is. So it's just like God wants to make sure that we know that when he makes a promise, we can absolutely be sure to trust it. And I think this is the main point of that whole passage, is that God gives us reason to trust in him. God gives us reason to trust in him. He gave them a reason, a way they understood oaths was a thing that was a, a, trans, uh, a currency that they transacted in, that they would have understood, right? And so we used to know. For us, maybe he would do something else, you know, that would say to us, ooh, this is really truth. In fact, I think he does. And this is the other thing I want to challenge you. The author of Hebrews is saying, you've tasted the goodness of God, so those of you who have experienced the truth of the gospel in community or friends or other people you know, or, or, or even the benefits of culture that have come from, from the gospel, that's one thing. Look to that. Recognize it. Uh, and say, okay, God isn't going to let me miss out. But maybe you, but how do you know, right? How can I know that I can trust God? And I just want to say to you briefly, God has given you reasons to trust him. And if you really examine with an open heart, I believe God will even reveal to you those reasons that he's already shown you. And I think you can take any path you want. If you're persuaded by science, then by golly, take a look at it. You know, really look at the scientific sort of, suggestions that God exists. Science can't prove a lot of things, and it doesn't even try to prove a lot of things. But what it can prove, and what it has proven, is that the kind of universe we live in is ordered and intelligent, and therefore it definitely suggests a God. And there's a lot of reason to look at that. There's a, there's a new book out, coming out here in a month or two, called uh, The Return of the God Hypothesis. You might check it out. But, but my point is, you want to take science, too. You want to go the philosophical intellectual route? Go for it. Some of the smartest philosophers throughout history, St. Augustine, Aquinas, C.S. Lewis, Kierkegaard, a lot of them have come to the conclusion that God is, is real. You just look at the universe around you, right? He's given us, Paul says, we know by the very nature of the creation we live in that not only is there a God, but that he's real and that he's good and the very character and nature of God. And Paul isn't the only one who says that. Socrates said the same thing. He was executed for being an atheist, for not believing in the gods of the, of, the Greek, of, the, of the Greek world. And he believed there was a single god who was really the god, and he was different. He wasn't the god that they heard from. He wasn't Zeus. He was some other god. And he said that we knew this, 
by looking at the nature of the universe around us. I just think no matter what path you take, look at your own experiences in life and, and, and examine them honestly. I think that God has given you reason to trust him. I don't think he asks you to blindly trust him. I think he woos you to him all the time, and he's given you reason, and I ask you to just look at those honestly. Everybody I know, and I suppose it's easy to say this, I can just say they weren't honest, but I'll, I'll say it anyway. Everybody that I know, and, and, and a lot of people I don't know, C.S. Lewis and Josh McDowell and, and uh, Augustine himself, a lot of people that I know, once they really uh, step up, least trouble, once they really take a look at the gospel honestly, and then friends of mine that I know personally, they find themselves persuaded. Not by me. Some of them don't even know me. But because God has given us reason to trust him. And I think if we're honest about that, I just want to challenge you. Just for a moment, lay aside your investment in the idea that the gospel can't be all there is. And if you were to let go of that investment, if you were to let go of the defiance, would you find that there was evidence there? And would that evidence be enough? Because I think if you don't resist the gospel, then I think you find the gospel is beautiful and valid. Which isn't true of everything. There's other things I don't resist that don't turn out to be true. <laughs> but I'm just saying this is. All right. But here's where it all comes down to. Here's the point I want to make for all of us. I want you to see... Because this is kind of the, the beauty of the gospel, and this is the picture that the author of Hebrews gives to the members of Hebrews, and it's, a, it's using a picture that they would understand, and so I want to take just a few minutes to share with you why this analogy would be so powerful for them. He says this, we have this hope. What hope? The hope that God has told us the truth. The hope that God has promised us what he's promised us, and that he's fulfilled the promise in Jesus. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. Before we go any further, just think about that. Isn't, wouldn't it be nice? So many of our hopes are kind of on, on, on shaky ground, right? They're kind of unsolid. We hope something happens and it doesn't happen, and then we feel that disappointment, we feel that hope deferred, we feel heart sick. And that happens a lot. He's saying, think about if there were a hope that was firm and secure, that was so anchored that no matter what happens in the world around you, you still felt solid. So this is what he says. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner, Jesus, has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Now, next week we're going to talk about Melchizedek because the author of Hebrews does, and we'll hold off on that. But what he talks about here is the inner curtain. He says that Jesus was our forerunner in behind the inner curtain. There's this curtain. And Jesus has entered it ahead of us on our behalf. And now we're anchored into wherever that is. And this is important to understand what in the world is this curtain, because this, this would speak volumes to the readers, but for us, it's not so clear. So I'm just going to share with you, there's a lot of passages in the Old Testament that we could go through and read, but I'm just going to, for the sake of time, share with you the story of what the curtain is. So when the Israelites were wandering in the wilderness after they got rescued from the Egyptians, as they're on their way to their sort of permanent place, the promised land, where they're going to be able to set up and have a, a land, a homeland, God wants to give them a special place. He wants them to know that he's with them, and he walks with them, and his presence is with them. But he also wants them to remember how, how a big above them he is <laughs> and, and to have some reverence for him so that they'll trust him. And so he has them build what's called a tabernacle. Now, a tabernacle literally just means tent, but this is a huge tent, and it's a tent with different rooms in it. And it's what ultimately becomes the temple in Jerusalem. But before it's the temple, it's the tabernacle. And in both the tabernacle and the temple... There are very specific plans and very specific blueprints. 
And in all those blueprints, there's one thing that is true. And that's that the entire structure is set up to remind you how far from God you are. <laughs> and to invite you in to know God, but only some of you. We talked about the inclusive nature of the gospel. This is kind of the opposite. This is actually making some distance and separation from the people. Again, to emphasize how big God is, how holy. The word holy literally means other. How kind of other God is. And here's how it's set up. So with the temple or the temple, uh, somebody delivering pizza. So uh, that's my doorbell. But we'll just keep going. I'm explain that in a minute too. So then you go to the outer court. And the outer court is sort of God-fearing people. You're still allowed to have some Gentiles and converted people and Jews, but it's, it's, it's a little bit more exclusive than just everybody out in the world. And then from there, you go into what's called the holy place. And only Jews are allowed into the holy place, and only after they've been cleansed and only at certain moments. And then you have within the holy place, you have something called the holy of holies or the most holy place, which literally means the most other place, the most separate place. And inside that holy place, there is the Ark of the Covenant, which is where the law of God goes, and some other very special artifacts. And the big thing about the Ark of the Covenant is God told the Hebrews, look, I live everywhere. The earth is my throne, right? The heavens are my throne, and the earth is my footstool, frankly. But I want you to think of the Ark as my presence. I want you to think of it as my throne. And so it needs to be treated with extra special care and extra special reverence. So it's put inside the most holy place, and then there's a curtain, a very thick curtain, that separates the most holy place from the holy place. And this is such a big deal that what happens is when the tabernacle is set up, only one person, once a year, is allowed to enter the most holy place, and that's the high priest. And the high priest is the person who is allowed to enter the holy of holies, or the most holy place, once a year, but only after putting on special clothes, which are reserved only for this moment, once a year. Only after going through a lot of sacrificial cleansing and ceremonies, which are only done once a year. And only on the day of the year when he goes on on behalf of the entire nation. And he goes into the inner, inner, inner curtain, into the Holy of Holies, on behalf of the nation. He has to sacrifice for himself first because he's sinful. Then he goes in and he sacrifices for the others. And if he does it wrong, says God, he will die. <laughs> if he enters the curtain without the appropriate measures, he will die. In fact, they took this so seriously. We know some of this from Scripture, but some of this we also just know from tradition. That what the Jews got in the habit of doing with the high priest was, well, first of all, they were told to create a robe which had bells on it already, literal bells on it, so you'd hear them coming. And the, the Jews uh, came up with another use for this, or maybe it's the one God had intended, we don't know. But what they did is they would tie a rope around the ankles of the high priest when he would go in on this one day a year to sacrifice for the nation. And, and when they went in, they would listen, and if the bells continued to ring, they'd know he was alive, he was moving around, but if the bells stopped ringing, they would pull him out by the rope. Now, there's no indication this ever happened in history that they ever had to actually pull the high priest out by the, by the rope. And there's all sorts of questions about whether that really would have worked, I mean, where were they when they were listening for the bells? I get all that. But the fact that this is even a tradition tells you how strongly they saw this point. And, that, and, and you can see why, because it's like, well, what if he dies when he's in there? How are we going to get him out? We can't go in. No one can go in. So this is the separation that the curtain provides. And this is the idea. God is this big. He's this important. He's this much above us. He's this much more pure than we are. His holiness, his purity, his righteousness is of a category of other. We know that we are unjust. We know that we don't love each other like we should. We know that we mess up. We are fallible and we are mistaken. And, and, and all the goodness of God is not 
It's just not in us, at least not with the degree that it is in God. And that's why God is that other. So this is the curtain. But then there's this interesting thing that happens. They, make, they build this curtain in the temple as well. It's very thick. And we're told in the Gospel of Mark that when Jesus dies on the cross, at the moment of his death, we're told that the curtain in the temple, this same curtain that separates the most holy place from everybody else, this curtain in the temple, we're told, tears from top to bottom. So it's really weird for a curtain to tear from top to bottom. From bottom to top kind of makes sense. You kind of pull on it and it tears. To tear from top to bottom doesn't even really make sense, right? Because at a certain point, why would it even keep tearing unless there's pressure from the top pushing down? Because the curtain would just sort of fall apart. But that's the point, is that God, from top to bottom, rent the curtain, tore it up. Also, it's a very thick curtain. This is not a thin curtain. This, would, this is not an accident. This is a miracle. And it happens at the moment Jesus dies. And why? Because that separation from God has been removed. Because now we're all invited into the most holy place. See, this is, this is crazy. Now, it's even crazier from what the author of Hebrews says. Because he says, right? He says that we have this anchor into the Holy of Holies, strong and secure, because Jesus entered on our behalf. So think about this. The high priest, when he went into the inner temple, where was he anchored? He was anchored outside. They had a rope. They were holding him. He was anchored to the outside world. Why? Because that's where he belonged. Because he was a member of the outside world. Because he wasn't, he wasn't other. He didn't belong with God. He just went into God once a year to accomplish a task to try to make things better between us and God. But he didn't really belong there. He belonged with us. And so he was anchored to the outside world. And that's where it was safe for him. And that's where we would pull him out if things got bad. But the other of Hebrews says, now it's the other way around. Now we're anchored inside the Holy of Holies because that's where we belong. Because from what Christ has done, he has thrown open the curtain. He has invited everybody in. He has embraced us. He has made us a, a righteous and appropriate for the presence of God. He has made us other like him. By becoming like us, he now made us other like him. And now... Our anchor is not in the world, it's in the presence of God. It's in heaven. It's in that inner temple. It's in the most holy place. That is where we belong. And that is the amazing thing about the gospel. It's not just that Jesus had to die in order to persuade God to forgive us. That's just completely not what's happening here. It's not redemption in the sense of that, that God was angry and so Jesus died so that then it would be, you know, then God could make an excuse for forgiving us. No, Jesus, as God, the Holy Spirit, the Father, one God, all together in this plan, eager to give us the kingdom, says Jesus, decided all together for reasons we don't completely understand, that the way to erase that distance, to bring us back to him, was not just to find a way to forgive us, but to find a way to make us belong. To find a way to make us holy. See, this is what is really amazing. Is that our hope into the inner curtain is not based upon how well we keep the law. It's not based upon how smart we are. It's not based upon how well we do things. It's not based upon how religious we become. It's not based upon any of those things. It's based upon Jesus, our forerunner, who entered into the Holy of Holies for us. Your hope is anchored to God. What can be more secure than that? 
The God of the universe is holding the other end of your rope. And he is going to pull you to him if those bells stop moving. <laughs> because that's where you belong. And this is why I told you I was going to explain my setup at the end. And here's the reason that we're set up a little differently tonight. is because I have a son who has a birthday tonight. Birthday party. And so we, we've set up some things differently for him. And I needed to use the same equipment that I use for our teachings on Sunday nights. I needed to use it so we can watch a movie with him tonight. And here's what I want you to understand. This is my son. I will readjust things for my son. I will change what we do and, 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 and reorganize them for my son. That is my sacred space. <laughs> and, and this is my son who we uh, adopted from Ethiopia. And he's my adopted son. I have chosen, and he is my son no less than any of the rest of my children. And see, this is the thing about the gospel. God didn't just forgive you and say, okay, now you can come into heaven. He actually adopted you. He adopted me. He adopted us as his children. And being God, when he adopts us, he changes our sort of spiritual genetic makeup as well. And we become like him. And he is, and our anchor is in that. He will adjust things for us. He will rearrange the features of the universe for his children. And that is a hope that you can cling to. That is solid. So the gospel is beautiful because it tells us that we belong with God. Not that we're going to get to heaven and feel out of place. So many of us have felt out of place everywhere we've gone. Can you imagine? I think the, the thing that attracted people to Jesus when he walked the earth was that everybody felt loved when they were with him. Everybody felt like they belonged when they were with him. Read it. Read the accounts. Read the stories. People's reaction to it was extreme. Why? Because everybody felt loved when they were with him. For the first time in their lives, people felt like they belonged. And you, if you will, if you will, by faith and patience, accept the gospel and not let FOMO or envy or, 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 or a, 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 an incorrect sense of justice, if you will accept that that temple, is, that inner place has been open for everyone, not just for the high priest, not just for the Hebrews, not just for the Jews, not just for evangelicals, not just for Christians, not just for Republicans, not just for Democrats, not just for people who, who are of a certain race or a certain philosophy. That has been opened to everybody. And all he asks is that you trust that when he makes a promise to you, he's going to keep it. And he promises to forgive your sins and remove them as far as the east is from the west. And that is what the book of Hebrews is about. Thank you guys for joining me. I hope that God is able to give you some sense of, of the message tonight and the real import of what we're looking at here. I just think we're going to continue to see this beauty as we continue to go through the book of Hebrews. But that, that's the message. That's where we are right now. And that's the, the importance of what we've, what we've looked at. Uh, we are focused, just to remind you, if you ever want to uh, donate. We, we Our money, we have a very small budget. It goes to paying me as the pastor, and then it goes back to the groups and, and pays for benevolence and for gifts and for supporting people during what's been a really tough 18 months or so now. Um, and uh, we've been able to help a lot of people, and I'm glad we have. And if you want to help or you feel like 
like you've received anything and you want to give back, you can go to focusabq.com and there's a donate button there and you're welcome to donate. Um, of course, it's tax deductible. Most churches believe in the value of small groups, but at Focus Church, we are so convinced that's where the discipleship happens that we put all of our resources, our training, and our assessment into the focus groups. And we believe that you can be part of a focus group from anywhere in the country. So if you'd like to join us, just email me at pastormac, M-A-C, underscore at mac.com, and I'd love to tell you how you can be part of it. Either way, I hope this has been encouragement to you, and we'll see you here again next week.